Well, God bless you. Welcome. I am so thrilled to be here tonight coming to you from my work office in Gilbert, West Virginia, southern part of the state, down near the Kentucky border. I'm at my office. I, I manage a coal mine. And so, uh, but I get to occasionally get with you wonderful folks and share God's word. So I'm thrilled to do it this evening. Um, I'll be reading the scriptures I read this evening. I'll be reading from the revised English version. If you happen to have one handy or want to follow along, but I wrote in the blurb about this, this evening sharing. And I stated that the war is upon us and I believe there is ample evidence that we are in the midst of a, not what most people think of as a cultural war, but the culture is simply a reflection of what's going on in the spirit realm. That is what the scriptures teach us. In fact, uh, every culture in society throughout history has traditions that sh- that that speak and refer to the spiritual forces that are at war around them now even even pagan religions every different uh culture of humanity every different race of humanity has had that basic belief that there are spiritual beings with spiritual powers that influence the lives of humanity now in our postmodern world uh, that got to be kind of poo-pooed, you know, that whole idea, because we became scientific in our perspective of life. And that scientific analysis uh, is fraught with all sorts of errors. But there's no question that that is the model that is taught from Scripture. Uh, all the evidence of Scripture points to a reality that we as humans are born into the midst of a raging war between two spiritual kingdoms, each of which is seeking the prize of our very souls. Uh, how did it, how did we get here? How, how did this come to be? Well, the war began in heaven, but it was brought to earth. Uh, we can read, it will start out, we'll read quickly in Isaiah 14. Uh, I'll read you these verses. In in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, it says, How have you fallen from heaven, shining one, son of dawn? How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit on the mountain of the assembly in the the far north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high yet you will be brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. And that this is Isaiah's prophecy regarding Lucifer, Satan, the devil, and how because of his being lifted up with pride, he was cast out of heaven, and he ended up being able to infiltrate God's creation in the earth. In Ezekiel 28, in verse 11, It says, moreover, the word of Yahweh came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Now, the king of Tyre that's mentioned here is not the literal king of Tyre. And you'll see from the description that it's speaking of a spiritual being. 
This is what the Lord Yahweh says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Jewels, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Gold work, works of tambourines and of pipes was in you. In the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed guardian cherub, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked down, up and down in the middle of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your merchandise, they filled the midst of you with violence, and you have sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane out of the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the most, from the midst of the stones of fire. So, what we see is that Satan, Lucifer, the devil, whatever title you may put on him, at one time was one of God's angels, one of God's cherubs, his spiritual beings in his presence. But he was lifted up with pride to the point that he wanted to exalt himself and he therefore lost his dominion. So then when when God created the heavens and the earth, it says in Genesis chapter 3 that suddenly this creature shows up called the serpent. Now that's the way it's translated is the serpent, but I believe E.W. Bullinger and others have correctly identified it as the shining one. That's what the word serpent meant, the shining one. Just like he was the shining one in heaven. He was, and actually the Apostle Paul talks about that even the devil is transformed into an angel of light. That's brightness, that reflects brightness and beauty. That he came into the garden and that was, that was an invasion. He was not created to be there. You know, he left his first habitation and came to the garden, and there he tempted Adam and Eve. And that was a direct attack on God's creation of the earth and the humans that he made on this earth. And once that that deceit was entered into and Adam sinned, then from there on, over and over and over, we can see in the history of Scripture the influence of evil spirits and demonic influences over and over again throughout the history of the Bible. Cain commits the unforgivable sin. He commits the sin that he could not undo by making Satan, the devil, his Lord. His descendants were even more evil than he was. Uh, you get these fellows like Tubal Cain, where it talks about how, uh, you know, that if Cain slew his one and was forgiven 70 times, seven times, then God will have to forgive me 70 times seven, because I kill lots of people, right? And, and they dominated and killed. And then you get, shortly thereafter, you get the introduction in, in Genesis chapter six of these creatures called Nephilim. And the Nephilim were, uh, it says, it refers to them because of mighty warriors. They were, they were, Spirit beings who brought, came to the earth and took women as wives, human women as wives. 
And from them, they created a whole race of giants in the earth that became, and that wickedness became so bad that God had to cleanse the earth with a flood because to wipe out all of the evil that had been visited upon the earth. And these are all stories that you can read clearly. These are records that can be read right from the scriptures. You know, following that, you have uh, the Tower of Babel, where, you know, humans are, are influenced to build their own kingdom of God, so to speak, to deny God, to refute God's law, and build build a name for themselves. Uh, then you get Sodom and Gomorrah. You end up with the children of Israel in slavery in Egypt. Then they get conquered by Babylon, conquered by Persia, conquered by the Greeks, eventually conquered by the Romans. So throughout time, these evil influences have influenced humanity, and it's always been in the direction of coming against the things of God and the works of God in the earth. So in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was accused by the Jews of being possessed with the devil. They recognized it even in his day. In Matthew chapter 12, in verses uh, 22 to 30, the Jews, Jesus had just cast out a devil, and the Jews said, well, he only does that because he is doing it with the power of the prince of the devils, Beelzebub, right? And Jesus makes a very profound statement right there. Jesus said that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. He then specifically says, if Satan is divided against Satan, how can his kingdom stand? So Jesus recognized that there was a kingdom, there was a hierarchy, there was an authority in the earth, present in the earth, that was ruled by Satan. Now, we in the 21st century, you know, there's a lot of people that you and I know. If you tell them that Satan has a kingdom on this earth and and has the ability to influence humanity, they'll look at you like, you know, you're from the dark ages. But that's the truth of Scripture. That's what Scripture teaches us. Even Paul, uh, you'll read about in, in Corinthians, Paul says that uh, he was buffeted about, he was beaten up, buffeted by a messenger of Satan. He didn't, he didn't attribute that to people. He said this was the cause of spiritual powers that were at work against his ministry. In fact, if you look at the ministry of Jesus, it was almost like it was his calling card. You know, he, what was his first act after he received the gift of Holy Spirit? Do you remember what it was? It says that he was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. That would be God. God took him, drove him, led him into the wilderness for one reason. It says, to take on the devil. He was tempted of the devil. He had to face that confrontation right up front. This is before he had ever preached the first sermon. He went and did battle in the spirit realm. Think about that. 
he went and fought in the spiritual realm first. Then he began his ministry. And in fact, when he began his ministry, we can read in uh, in Matthew chapter 1, uh, you can read where Jesus say, says that he went and went into the synagogue and there was a man there who had a demon, was possessed, and Jesus cast out the spirit from the man. And the people were amazed because they said he teaches with such authority and even the demons are subject to him, right? And it says his fame was spread throughout the region. And there is nothing any more powerful in the present world than the clear exhibition of the true spiritual power of God in the face of evil. That is truly powerful. That gets people's attention. So, you know, people who doubt that there is such a thing as spirit influence or spiritual powers who can affect our lives. Uh, another great illustration in black and white, we can read out of Daniel chapter 10. And I'm going to read this section just because there's some things in here that I really want you to pay attention to. So we'll take a look at Daniel chapter 10. And in verse 2, it says, In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three whole weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine into my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all until three weeks, three whole weeks were fulfilled. So Daniel was, was in a sense, in a sort of a fast where the, the people of Israel were, were having problems. He was asking for guidance from God and he entered into this period of mourning or fasting. And in verse 7, or verse uh, 4, it says, In the 24th day of the first month, as I was beside the river, the great river Hideki, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen. Now it starts describing this man, whose thighs were adorned with pure gold of Euphes, his body also was like the barrel and his face as the appearance of lightning and his eyes as flaming torches and his arms and his feet like burnished bronze and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. So what Daniel is seeing here is not by any stretch any ordinary human being. He is seeing something completely out of this world as he's observing this. And you go down to verse 12, this being begins to speak to him. And in verse 12, it says, Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the leader of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But behold, Michael, one of the chief leaders, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So what we see here is this being, this angelic being, beginning to talk to Daniel. And the first thing that we should take note of, and this is really profound to think about, is that when Daniel prayed, 
It set both kingdoms immediately in action. Think about that. Daniel, just one guy, but he prayed. And when he prayed, these magnificent spiritual kingdoms both got busy. The king of Persia, which represents the principality or the demonic ruler over the region of Persia, was resisting the angel that was coming from heaven to bring a message to Daniel. And he said, look, I would have been here. We heard you 21 days ago. But the prince of Persia withstood me. The, 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 the leader of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief leaders, came to help me. That's the, the archangel, as he's called in other places in the Bible. The archangel Michael had to come and get involved in the fight. And think about that. This is, these are real events. This is not mythology. These are real, literal events. So when we look out into our world, we do ourselves no service by looking at it purely from a physical, uh, material, sociological perspective. We do ourselves a great benefit if we observe the world through spiritual eyes. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. You see that this, this idea of a spiritual war is most vividly revealed in the scriptures from the time of Jesus onward through the, through the Bible. You see bits and pieces of it in the Old Testament, but it's not as clearly defined as it is after the time of Jesus because Jesus exposed them. Jesus exposed the kingdom. He took on the kingdom. You know, he fought against the devil himself. He fought against demons and cast out demons. He even, and we'll look at this, some of this later, he even took on the children of the devil who are human beings who have made the devil their Lord. And he took them on face to face right out in the open. So this idea that we just want to be good and kind and loving, yes, that's true. But we also must keep it a perspective that we are in the midst of a war. And in that war, when, when, when it is necessary, we need to be, as, as Mark prayed earlier, bold and courageous and frank in speaking the truth of God's word. In Ephesians chapter 10, it says, or chapter 6 and verse 10, it begins, finally, be empowered in the Lord. That is in the might of his strength. Put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. It can't be any more plain. Now, some people put a period right after the word wrestle. For we do not wrestle. 
You know, they have a Pollyanna attitude that, oh, you know, as long as I love the Lord and as long as I go to church and as long as I pay some money into the offering, there's no wrestle in life. It's all abundance and joy and goodness. That's not, there's no period there. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The emphasis there is that we have to take on a spiritual perspective. We can't look out there and see the the people and the politicians and the world rulers and look at them and say, they are my enemy. They may be if they're born of the seed of the devil, but on the other hand, they may simply be pawns in the hand of the greater spiritual powers, which Paul is writing about right here. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers, against authorities, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We have to absolutely make that the central theme in our minds when we go out into the world to speak the truth of God's word. See, that defines the backdrop. That is the, that is the canvas upon which the rest of reality is painted. That there is a great spiritual battle taking place. And in the midst of that battle, there's you and me. And we didn't ask to get here, but we're here. We were born into it. We didn't have a choice. Now the question is not whether we're in a battle or not, but what are we going to do? What do we do in the midst of this battle? You know, when you look at, if you look at Jesus and his ministry, his disciples and followers, he taught them to go out and to, to take the word out. And remember what they said after they'd been out, the first, the first group that went out. Do you remember what they said when they came back? They said, Lord, even the devils are subject to us through your name, right? And Jesus said, behold, I saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. We have ruined his game plan. He's got to come down here and try and straighten this mess out himself, right? He, Jesus taught his disciples to, to fight the spiritual fight, not just to be good people, but to fight the spiritual fight. And they did. Because of this in verse 13, because we recognize that we are in the midst of a spiritual war, take up the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand your ground in the evil day and having done everything to stand. You know, that is our job. Our job is to take our stand in the midst of this evil day. Well, What makes it an evil day? It's an evil day because the evil one is still free to roam around the earth with him and his cohorts and inflict evil upon humanity. You know, I I heard Doug pray there a minute ago about the weather. You know that there's clear scripture all over the Bible that God will give good weather to those who love and obey him. That's one of the blessings that God promises. You know, the reason we have all of these adverse weather systems and all of these 
crazy things happening is because the devil's being given free reign. It's because he's allowed to do whatever he wants. You know, I was taught at one time that, well, the God, he's the God of this world. That's true. He is the, the, the God, little g, of this world. But that does not mean that we do not have power as well. His authority does not negate our authority. In fact, it's just the opposite. Our authority negates his authority. Jesus said, I have been given all authority in heaven and in earth. Remember that at the end of the, right before his ascension? He said, and I give it to you. I've got all authority in heaven and in earth, and I give it to you. Go, therefore, and teach the word, preach the word. Go, therefore, be my disciples out in the world. See, I think sometimes we believers, because those of us who, you know, were brought up with an understanding that, well, Satan is the God of this world, we take it like that that means, well, you know, he's kind of in control and all we can do is just kind of sit here and watch it go on. You know, maybe we'll get, we'll stay out of the trouble, but, you know, he's going to run the show. No, he doesn't have to run the show. We can run the show if we will take our position in Christ seriously and walk into the situations with the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. We have the authority because Therefore, it says in verse 13, take the whole armor of God, be able to stand your ground in the evil day and having done all to stand. And then it begins telling us what this armor is. Most of it is defensive armor. Interesting. The very first one it lists, it says, therefore, stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth around your waist. Now, the, I wrote about this a few months ago in the Fruit of Divine, and I know there's differing opinions out there, and some people have told me that they disagree uh, with with my conclusion, and that's fine. We're we're allowed to do that, you know. There's absolute truth, and then there's inferred. And because the Bible, the Word of God, the Rama, the spoken word or the specific word, is mentioned later on as one of the instruments. It doesn't logically, to me, make sense that the truth that's referred to here is also that same truth. In fact, the word here that's used for truth, I believe, is the word aletheia, and it means that which is real, real, true, can be defined. You see, and the way I take this and the way I understand it and have applied it in my life is that if you're going to go into the spiritual battle, first thing you've got to do is get real. You've got to get honest. Religious hypocrisy will not cut it in spiritual warfare. You know, Jesus constantly accused the Pharisees of being hypocrites, told them to their face they're hypocrites. And when you look up that word hypocrite, a hypocrite is one who has a face, who has a, it, 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 uh, in, in Greek language, it was someone who wore a mask. You know, in the arts, Christina would know about this in the, in the early ages of the arts. Uh, they didn't have acting where there were, you know, 25 actors on stage. There would be a handful, three, four, five, but they would change masks and the masks would identify what character they were in the play. Okay. That's the way the playwrights wrote it. 
And that's what an, a hypocrite is. He's one who simply puts up a mask. We have lots of people with religious masks in our society. We have Catholic masks, Baptist masks, Pentecostal masks, Living Truth Fellowship masks, uh, Word of Life masks, people who find a way of being that is acceptable among their particular group. And whenever they're around that group, they put that little mask on. That is the hypocrite. That is not being real. The first thing we've got to do is make up our mind to get real. That's real with ourselves and real before God. And the only way I know that anybody can do this is to absolutely get into a place of honest repentance before God. To get to a place where we say, God, I'm nothing without you. I don't want to play any games. I don't want to be some religious person who everybody thinks of a certain way. I don't care what people think of me. I want to be real with you. I want to have a real, true, personal relationship with you first and foremost. That's what I want. And that being real then allows us to begin to bolt on these other pieces of armor. Look at the next one. It says, having fastened the belt of truth around your waist and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Well, you know, the breastplate covers our heart. And our heart, the scriptures tell us, is where, you know, the issues of life come out of the heart. And there's the, the breastplate of righteousness. I think maybe last month I wrote about the two righteousnesses that are in the Bible. There's the in, inferred righteousness of our standing that is given to us at the time of the new birth, that we're made not guilty before God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But the living out of righteousness is something that we have to choose. We have to choose not to be an unrighteous person. And so this shows that it's a deliberate act. Both types of righteousness are a deliberate act. We have to tell our own minds that, hey, I'm not guilty, no matter how often I sin. I don't want to sin, but I know that I do. But I am still not guilty in God's eyes because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I have to put that on. And then I also have to put on the, the in that breastplate of righteousness, the absolute desire of my heart has to be to be obedient to God, to follow his word and to do his word, not just to pretend to be righteous, but to actually live righteously. So we put on the breastplate of righteousness and having your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the good news of peace. Uh, you know, our feet take us where we're going to go. Our feet carry us to the places we need to be. Are our feet prepared with the gospel of peace? Are we ready to go in and share the gospel, speak the word, and walk in with the peace of God and the love of God in our hearts? That's one of the pieces of our armor. 
and verse 16, in addition to all this, taking up the shield of trust or the shield of faith. John Shane Ike translates it as trust, which will be able to quench the flaming arrows of the wicked one. Well, now clearly flaming arrows, none of us are getting shot at with flaming arrows, you know, but there are spiritual flaming arrows thrown at us all the time. And you know, whenever we get into this spiritual war, we have got to have our faith, our trust in the Lord built up because you know, Satan doesn't just attack me. He attacks my wife. He may attack my home. He may attack my children. He may attack the things in my, my job, any number of things in my life that will impact me. My faith, my trust in the Lord has to cover all of those areas. I have to be able to put up a shield that protects all the different parts of my life, not just me. See, that turns it out from being just a selfish thing of, oh, me and my, but me and my family and my family's family and those I care about and love and my friends, you know, our faith needs to be big enough so that we can stop those fiery darts. And it says, and take the helmet of salvation. And that helmet is that thing which protects our mind. And I don't know of anything any more debilitating to the human mind than to have to live in doubt of whether or not you are saved. But the scriptures, thank God, have shown us that our salvation is guaranteed. It is guaranteed. It is bought and paid for. And it was not delivered to me by my works. It was not given to me because of anything I did. But it was bought and purchased and guaranteed by the sacrificial life of Jesus Christ. And having that knowledge, that protects my mind more than anything else. Do you want to see someone who is uh, mentally being flogged? Find you a religious person who from one day to the next doesn't know if he is with God or against God, doesn't know if he has salvation or doesn't have salvation. Oh, I just hope I can make it, brother. That person doesn't have peace. That person does not have his mind protected with the helmet of salvation. And then the last piece is the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. And this word, word here, is in the Greek the word rhema, R-H-E-M-A. You know, there's two primary words in the Bible used for the word of God. One is logos, and the other one is rhema. Logos, the way I kind of understand it is logos is like the scope of things, the whole picture, the big plan, okay, the big plan of God that you learn as you read the scriptures from Genesis onward. You know, God created humans to be his co-rulers on this planet, to be his co-regents, and that got messed up. So he had to come up with another plan, and that plan was 
to have a savior. And in the meantime, he picked a family in order to have a savior come through, which was Abraham. And that plan, you know, that whole scope, how God has worked throughout time, that's the logos. That's the whole will and intent of God. But the rhema is a specific word. It's a specific word for a specific thing. And that's how we should use the word of God. You know, you, you can't just quote any scripture and think that, oh, as long as I know this scripture, you know, that'll handle it. No, we need the specific word of God, which will quench or which will attack or wound in the spirit realm. Well, I was was going to uh, go further with this, but I tell you, the, the time is uh, there's so much in this material that we could do. But I don't, I don't want to belabor these points, but I do want to take a few minutes and just share with you uh, some of my personal experience in engaging in spiritual warfare. And I'm doing this, I hadn't intended to, but I want to do it. I think I need to do it. I'm doing it to simply let you know that this is real, people. This is not a joke. Uh, I began learning about what I would call spiritual warfare, uh, probably uh, 25 years ago or so from a, a great minister of God named Derek Prince. And I began learning about the demonic kingdom, knew nothing about it, uh, basically had ignored it most of my life. And I began to learn details about how they work and how they infiltrate and things they do and demons and how demons manifest themselves and so on. And so I had a young couple that I had performed a marriage for, a wedding for, uh, years before, back when I was the limb, what they called the limb leader of uh, the state of West Virginia. And they came to my home. And as I began sharing some of what I was learning with them, uh, the wife spoke up and said, I think I might have a demon. So I said, well, I'll pray for you. And the crazy thing was, I hadn't seen these people in years. And I knew before they came, the Lord revealed to me by revelation that I was going to be casting out demons that night. And we had a cookout, families, her, his family, their family, my family. And so this was afterwards out on the patio. Uh, everyone else was inside. Kids were playing, whatever. So I began to pray for her. And I laid my hand on her back and began to pray for her. And when I did, supernatural things began to occur. One was that things began to happen in her body, which I did not understand. I felt her back begin to swell up underneath my hand. I had no idea what it was, but I just kept praying and thanking God for the courage to do what needed to be done. And then the demon began to speak, and it was not her. It was a masculine voice, and it was rough, and it was mean. And it began to say all kinds of nasty things. And the first thing it said to me was that you better leave her alone, or I will, or I will kill her, or I will, I will kill him like I killed her baby. And so I cast out a spear of murder, and then and then another one came out, and another one, and another one, and in all, I think there were seven demons that came out of her. And when it was done, she turned to me and she said. What did it mean when it said, if 
if if you don't leave him alone, it will will kill my husband like it did my baby. But she had two children. And like that, the Lord showed me, and I said, "Uh, you ever have an abortion? He said, yeah, when I was 16. He said, that's when it came in. It came in when you were a child, when you were a young girl. And that's how it's long it's been in there. And then the husband turned to me and he said, pray for me too. <laughs> you know, so I began to pray for him in a very similar situation. And it was, it was the most humbling thing I'd ever experienced in my life because I, I didn't feel like, you know, I was any body that should be doing this, but God's given us that authority. We have that right. We have that power if we will only use it. But if we just go around thinking that, oh, all I got to do is just know more Bible, you'll never, you'll never wage war in the spirit realm. You have to first be willing to look at the world through spiritual eyes the way that Jesus did, the way that the apostle Paul did. And then when you're confronted with the face of evil, you have to have the courage to call evil, evil. When Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees who were out to kill him, he said, you are of your father, the devil, period. He didn't mince words about it, right? And when when Paul was faced with the guy who was born of the sea of the serpent, Elimaeus the sorcerer, I think was his name. He said, you child of the devil. And he ran him off. He cast him away, called him a child of the devil. When they were confronted with the little girl who was, uh, you know, running around behind him and Barnabas and saying, oh, look at these guys. They're great servants of God, servants of God. And Paul finally got set, fed up with it and turned around and said, come out of her, spirit of divination, right? And he cast the demon out. We have to have the boldness to do that. But you can't do that as a game. It's got to be really in your heart to be doing, waging this kind of war. And to do that, we must put on this armor of God. And then we take that sword of the spirit, which is the truth of God's word. And we go out and we are his ambassadors in this world. And we stand our ground. And as Mark prayed, we have the courage of Christ in our hearts. And the right of Christ, you know, I'll close with this, this little thing. Jesus' ability to square off with the devil was based on one thing primarily, I believe, and that was because of his relationship with the Father. He had such a relationship with the Father that he could openly square off against the greatest spiritual power in the universe other than his Father, and that was the devil. And it's interesting because, you know, the disciples... Of all the things that they saw Jesus do, of all the things that they witnessed in his life, there's only one thing that's ever recorded they asked him to teach them, and that was how to pray. They didn't say, teach us how to teach. They didn't say, teach us how to study the Bible. They didn't say, teach us how to witness. They said, teach us how to pray. They must have seen that there was tremendous power in Jesus' life that emanated from prayer. 
And I believe there's no greater truth than entering into our secret place in those quiet places and pouring our heart out before God in honesty and genuineness and asking him to fill our lives so that we can then go out and be his ambassadors in the world. So as we close, I asked Franco to play this song, and it's a wonderful song. It's one of my favorite songs. It was done by a group called For Him many years ago. Uh, it was done back in the, golly, back in the 90s. And the, the song was called A Sacred Hideaway. I want to read you these lyrics very quickly, and then we're going to listen to the song. I want you to pick up on this. It says, there's a shadow I can't see from a holy canopy that my father spread for me. When I'm strong or when I'm weak, when I wake or when I sleep, he is watching over me. To the temporary mind, I can't logically define this love cover so divine. Just beneath what lies between what is real and what is seen, there's a refuge in his wing. I have found a secret place where I can go to hide away. Safe inside this hollowed space, I'm concealed by saving grace forever in this sacred hideaway. Flaming arrows deep in flight, people dropping left and right, still I'm safely out of sight. Darkness trying to prevail, but I'm kept within the veil. Still within this life, there's so much to learn. There's barriers to cross, there's bridges to be burned. And where the lion walks, I will not be afraid. My feet may touch the earth, but my heart is swept away in this hideaway. I pray that your life and your heart can be hidden in the presence of God in your everyday life. He who abides in the prayerful presence of God need never fear Satan and his hosts. Amen. A shadow I can't see from a holy canopy that my father spread for me. When I'm strong or when I'm weak, when I wake or when I sleep, he is watching over me. Define this love cover so dead.